0: Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Michelle. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop, Coping with the Stresses of Caregiving When Your Loved One Has mantle Cell Lymphoma. And today's program is a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations. And today's program is supported by Pharmacyclics LLC, an AbbVie company, and Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program as well as uh, many of our programs. So thank you so much. And um, I want to let you know um, that there are a lot of people on the call today. We have over 225 participants on the call today, so there are a lot of you. Um, And you come from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, Iraq, Oman, Pakistan, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call as well, and it's a credit to all of you that you're spending the next hour with us. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Thomas Haberman. Dr. Haberman is Professor of Medicine, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. Dr. Haberman will present on an update on mantle cell lymphoma for caregivers, caring for your loved one with mantle cell lymphoma in the context of COVID-19, challenges in communicating with the healthcare team, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology and list of questions. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed
2: colleague, Dr. Haberman. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. It's a privilege to be here with you and your team, Dr. Dana Ketcher and Ms. Sharon Flynn and all of the attendees. An update on mantle cell lymphoma for caregivers. The Lymphoma Research Foundation convened the 2021 Mantle Cell Lymphoma Scientific Workshop from April 6th through April 8th of 2021. This is the premier meeting on mantle cell lymphoma internationally over the years. It's been ongoing since 2004. This is an international group of individuals who are leaders in the field of mantle cell lymphoma research and clinical trials. And I think the most significant message to come out of this was the improved outcomes and new approaches which really provide tremendous hope and tremendous progress in mantle cell lymphoma. Two major perspectives that have been emerging at this time are risk factors and key treatment strategies in untreated patients and key treatments in, in uh, previously treated patients. The major questions and treatment strategies that are un- under different tri- in different trials under study include the role of autologous stem cell transplant in the treatment of patients up front, the role of maintenance therapy of the anti-cd20 antibodies versus transplant the role of a chemotherapy free approach bruton kinase inhibitors and rituximab and venetoclax and lastly car t cell therapy what are some of the updates and directions in these trials and their significance for mantle cell lymphoma The results of 861 patients recruited in Europe in the Triangle studies are addressing autologous stem cell transplant in maintenance rituximab or maintenance of brutinib in a three-arm trial after initial upfront treatment of the standard RCHOP alternating with RDHAP. Secondly, in industry trials, the SHINE trial randomized 765 patients to bendamustine rituximab, the other backbone in this disease, to abrutinib rituximab, and these results are pending. Thirdly, the enriched trial looks at chemotherapy arm versus rituximab and abrutinib. This has also completed its accrual, and results are pending. In the United States, ECOG 4151. Takes patients who are age 18 to 70 after initial treatment and in complete remission and randomizes patients to peripheral blood stem cell transplant versus maintenance anti CD20 therapy who are in complete remission by clonal markers. So, this is the first big clonal marker study. If not in part- complete remission, indeterminate, or have a, patients who have a clonal molecular marker, then they're assigned to transplant. This trial has accrued already 489 patients, and the good news is it is accrued during the COVID-19 pandemic. The ECOG-1411 trial added to bendamustine rituximab different approaches of rituximab and litamide, and the results of these are pending on 372 patients. The OASIS trial randomized patients to rituximab versus rituximab and venetoclax. This is pending. Cytosine arabinocide is now being added to bendamustine rituximab, and venetoclax is also being added. And lastly, the different Bruton kinase inhibitors, ibrutinib, calibrutinib, and xanabrutinib, are under evaluation and evaluating patients, especially with regard to toxicities and bleeding and atrial arrhythmias, but also response, and there are many other trials. In patients who have relapsed, most profound information has been the CAR T-cell therapy trial of the Zuma 2 trial, which resulted in a complete remission rate in two-thirds of patients, and 25% of patients had a partial remission. This has essentially not happened before. So this is really a fascinating time in mantle cell lymphoma, with CAR T approaches, new different treatment approaches, and trials in 2,487 patients the addition of new drugs such as venetoclax, and then phenomenal the genomic studies of the tumor itself, and then the cells around the tumor cells, that is the microenvironment. What about caregiving for your loved one with mantle cell lymphoma in the context of COVID-19? Two general comments first for caregivers. First and foremost, show up. That's Patients ask me this question all the time, and just to have a presence and be there. Secondly, understand that it's often harder on the caregiver than it actually is the patient. With regard to specifics in the COVID-19 pandemic for patients and loved ones, get vaccinated. Practice social distancing and mask. The management of uh, this virus is social distancing. So not coming to the physician's office and other healthcare facilities like people did uh, during many other illnesses. The problem is, is who is at risk. The individuals at risk are age 65 and older and for death, and 80 percent of the deaths in different countries in the world uh, involve this population, and, and it relates to having other comorbid conditions such as diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity heart disease, and other malignancies. And our lymphoma patients also have this. So what about family members? Social distancing must be embraced, three to six feet. If people visit the house, ten feet. As far as what can you do for your loved one, I've been really impressed the last year and a half with the supportive things that family members do, such as do the grocery shopping, run the errands, and show up far more regularly. Thirdly, stay at home and isolated. If you don't have to be out, don't be out. It's okay to be outside, but being out around others, individuals, and in buildings is not a good idea, especially if you're on chemotherapy or if it have recently had chemotherapy. At this point in time, avoid gatherings of over ten This includes religious services and family gatherings, which only bring crowds of people of all ages and at all risk. So, therefore, mask, socially distance, and then monitor for the illness has become the mantra. mantra. Other resources to utilize are cancer care, Lymphoma Research Foundation, and others, and take advantage of those things. Uh, The work that these organizations do is really phenomenal. Challenges in communicating with the healthcare team, general principles, everyone's busy, we're all working differently, we're seeing patients and not just sitting at the computers. With regard to appointments, a limited number of individuals are allowed, usually one, have consistency, and rotate different family members, especially for chemotherapy visits. Use the phone to talk to nurses, use electronic communication such as the devices in Epic and Cerner like in-baskets. Email is an issue because it's not secure, but it can be utilized. Lastly, what about guidelines to prepare for telehealth and telemedicine appointments, including technology and list of questions? And these are my seven personal thoughts. Number one, be on time and set up early. Ten minutes late and the appointment may be canceled. Number two, have your electronic device set up in a comfortable environment where you might also be able to get at your paper records and your questions that you've written down. Appreciate that very few of us like looking at ourselves on the camera, and you probably won't either on Zoom and other devices. Number three, don't be afraid of making mistakes. No one's really an expert. We're all making mistakes on our end on this, too. I'm reminded of a quote by Niels Bohr that sits above my desk, which reads as follows, quote, an expert is a man or woman who has made all the mistakes which can be made in a very narrow field, unquote. Number four, it's helpful if you're not used to using this technology to have someone with you, such as your spouse or one of your children, it's good to have family present in any event unless and unless you're not comfortable with having them knowing the details about your present health status. If others are present, it's good to introduce them so that their, voice aren't, their voices aren't coming out of the background and from appear to be nowhere if you're on my end. Number five, understand that some physicians and healthcare physicians, providers provide considerable time going over medical records if they've not seen you before. Others do not. We may also have to get back to you at a later date. Six, just like in the office, physicians and healthcare providers may be going through your records on the computer while talking to you, so they may not be looking at you. Lastly, and I've said this for years, prepare notes and ask questions ahead of time. You will not likely remember your questions or comments during the visits without these notes. I learned this over the last 35 years of being involved in the care of phenomenally different patients from phenomenally different backgrounds and cultures. So in conclusion, the COVID-19 pandemic is not going to go away soon. We're here to keep you safe and think in terms of the long-term about you. In my career, which started in 1982, I've never had the discussions and plans that I've had to have before in delaying treatment and doing less testing. But in the end, Patients with treatable diseases, such as mantle cell lymphoma, should be treated with the best possible therapeutic and interventions when needed. I'm full of significant hope for patients with mantle cell lymphoma and how they are managed at this point in time in 2021. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Haberman. That was really outstanding. and a lot of wonderful information. You really set the context for today's program, so thank you so much. Um, And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. Um, And um, our next speaker is Dr. Dana uh, Ketcher. And Dr. Ketcher is Applied Postdoctoral Fellow, Department of Health Outcomes and Behavior, Moffitt Cancer Center. And Dr. Ketch will be addressing what research tells us about caregivers, caregivers' important role in decision-making, and caregivers' role in adherence, weekends, holidays, and special occasions. Um, It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ketcher.
3: Thank you, Dr. Mesner. I'm so excited to be here and to learn from not only the panelists, but to also learn through um, the questions that we're going to hear from later in the program. Um, So, like Dr. Mesner said, my name is Dana Ketcher. Um, I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow, which just means I devote all my time to research, Um, and I'm based in Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. And, you know, my focus has really um, been on caregivers um, of uh, patients with advanced cancer. So, you know, when I'm talking about the research um, today, I'm gonna talk a little bit more in generalities of what we're seeing, you know, across the caregiver um, literature. But, you know, a lot of what I'm going to tell you, you probably already know. You know, is I'm almost preaching to the choir at this point. Um, so when we're thinking about research um, about caregivers, um, you know, a lot of the research can focus on the negatives of caregiving, right? So we know that there's a lot of stress. There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of depression. Um, there can be high levels of um what we call caregiver burden, which is just you know the acts of providing care, whether that's kind of emotional support, physical support, things like that. Um, but I think it's really important for us to also understand that there are, are also positives that you can find um, in the, your caregiving situation. It might not feel like that all the time, and I totally understand that. Um, but you know, people have said you know caregiving has made me feel closer to. Um, other people in my family, or even um, you know, but the patient, uh, I have a greater appreciation of life. Um, you feel almost a clarification of life priorities. If you're a person of faith, maybe you feel like your um, faith has increased. Um, maybe you feel like you have more empathy for others. So I think it's really important, you know. I think the research tends to focus on the negative outcomes of caregiving because those are the things that we want to alleviate, right? We want to make sure that. We're getting rid of those negatives, but I think it's also really important to think about the positives in the situation um, and think about how you can maximize those positives. And with caregivers, we know at an individual level, caregivers are super motivated to learn. They're super motivated to be there for the patient, but they really tend to be overwhelmed and then only focus on the patient and their well-being. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to caregivers and they say, Well, I don't matter at this point. It's all about the patient. I understand that that is definitely a stance that um, people might want to take, but it's also so, so important to think about your self care. Um, and I'm really glad that Ms. Flynn will be talking about some uh, tips, and I really hope you write those down and take them to heart because your well being, your physical and your psychosocial well being, is totally interdependent with the health and well being of the patient. There's something called the interdependence model of health, which talks about how basically if your health as a caregiver goes down, that can directly relate to the health of the patient. Um, So it is really, really important for you to take care of yourself. And I know that that can be a really hard place to get out of um, and kind of stepping back to focus on yourself. I know it can feel selfish, but if you take anything out of this, I really want you to think about um, taking care of yourself first and foremost so you can better take care of your loved one or the patient. Um, We also know that um, as caregivers, you're gonna rely on a lot of different types of relationships, right? And that could especially be the patient's care team, Um, but we know that interpersonal communication can be really difficult. And so when you're thinking about um, interpersonal communication, not only with the care team, but with those people in a relationship, You know, I I specifically study communication, and what I see a lot is this reticence to speak up or to speak out to other people, whether that's the patient themselves, um, your wider social network who you're asking for help, um, or the uh, patient's care team. So I really want you to also think about um, ways that you can work on communication, because so many of the problems that I research um, among caregivers kind of Sometimes just comes down to straight communication, right? We don't want to burden other people with what is going on with us. We don't want to burden them with the knowledge. Um, But you'll find more often than not that that communication really opens up and helps things more than it hurts things. Um, And then also, I think another thing that we focused on with caregiver research is that um, there is a really there's a lack of resources for uh, for caregivers. Um, and supporting caregivers, but they are there. So I, I really encourage you to work with your, um, your social worker, um, work with the care team to make sure that you have all available access to those resources that are there. Um, and also try to make sure that you are seen. I know a lot of caregivers talk to me about not necessarily being seen by the healthcare system in that maybe they're talked over, maybe the, the provider is talking to the patient, um, when, you know, you are the one doing everything at home, you're the one providing the medicine, you're the one providing all the care. Um, so, you know, it, this takes a little bit of advocacy, but I would really, um, I really want caregivers to feel empowered to um, make sure that they are seen inside the healthcare system at large. Um the good news is there is a lot, um, caregiver research has really kind of been growing in the last few years. So there are interventions to address you know, some of these things that I talked about with the psychosocial well-being, with physical health, um, maybe increasing information, um, access to information. Um, oh, another area I specifically look at is social support and the value of social support. But again, we don't necessarily see that anything is standardized across um, systems. Um, so if, if, you're, if you have one of these interventions available to you, I know it's extra time, but I would highly encourage you to take part um, in research because there are caregiver researchers out there that are trying to address some of these issues. Um, and again, as your role in decision-making, you know, kind of for all the reasons I just covered, I don't really need to tell you how important you are in the decision-making process. And this is kind of a hard topic to discuss because it's going to be different for every single person based on the kind of uh, uh, partnership that you have with the patient, maybe your spouses, maybe you've been married for 30 years, maybe you've only been married for five years, maybe you're a child and a parent, maybe your siblings, um, so it really is you and the patient making sure that you're, first of all, having um, a conversation about um, whether the patient wants to make their own informed decision on their own, Uh, maybe you'll be working together to make that decision. Um, And maybe that's, you know, maybe they want you to be really outspoken um, and ask all the questions and kind of take control in the clinical encounters um, and kind of let you figure out all of the information. Again, it's, it's so dependent on what the patient feels comfortable and what you feel comfortable as in that relationship as a caregiver with the patient. Um, there really is you know, no right or wrong way, I would say it's just you have to open that conversation with the patient and say, hey, what are you comfortable with? And again, extending that beyond the patient, once you two have kind of figured out what works best for you, then it's communicating that to the care team and the different providers that you're in contact with. Um, and so just making sure, again, that everyone's on the same page. Um, I think Dr. Haberman said, you know, make sure that your, your voice is being heard in those clinical encounters. Um, and then finally, your role in adherence, you know, in, over the weekends and holidays and special occasions. I know I'm running out of time and I want to be respectful of time. So um, again, I think this is really similar to decision making. You need to make sure that you are comfortable with that decision, that you're both kind of come to some kind of agreement on what feels safe, what feels best for both of you. Um, maybe that's reaching out to um, people in your extended social network to help provide social support um, for those kinds of special times. Um, and I think it's really just about preparing, right? I think everything that you do is about preparing, but it's, a, it's taking the time to sit down and say, hey, we have this special event coming up. How do we want to deal with this? How do we want to kind of um, tag team this? Maybe you as a caregiver, you check out, so you have some self-care time. Um, whatever it is, I just hope that you take care of yourself um, and remember how important you are in this process. Um, and I will always come back to this, communicate, 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 because what I see, again, more often than not is what we call protective buffering, And that's really just this, um, basically, where people don't want to burden someone else um, They don't want to make them sad. They don't want to make them angry. Um, And so they keep things inside. And really, there are so many important things that you need to talk about with not only the patient, but your wider social network and providers. So I hope that you um, take care of yourself and communicate. And so that's all I have for that.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ketcher. That was really outstanding, and, and I love the concept of protective buffering. There will be questions about that during the Q&A, and a wonderful presentation. So thank you so much. I'm uh, very delighted to have, the, this, have you on this call. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Sharon Flynn, and Ms. Flynn is an oncology nurse. She's a nurse, nurse practitioner, nursing research and translational research research science clinical center nursing department national institutes of health clinical research center and Ms. Flynn will be addressing coping with each day anniversaries and birthdays managing family friends and traditions in the context of COVID-19 including physical distancing and wearing masks long distance caregiving and self-care tips for managing stress it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Flynn. Oh, great.
4: Thank you, Dr. Messner, for the invitation to be a part of today's panel, and a warm welcome to all of our caregivers and our mantle cell lymphoma cancer survivors on this call. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. And so I'm going to start with um, coping. The reality of COVID-19 is that every single one of us has already celebrated a birthday or an anniversary or an important milestone during the pandemic. We used to think, oh, it'll be over pretty quickly and then we'll just celebrate it another time. But um, it's continuing on and will be continuing on. So I don't want us to skip any of those important milestones like birthdays and anniversaries. And COVID-19 has pushed us to celebrate them in different ways than we would have previously. We can no longer have those big birthday parties um, to celebrate and so we've had to find different ways, alternative ways to celebrate these important milestones. And so when we're thinking about those in the context of um, caregivers and cancer survivors, we first wanna ask um, our close loved ones how they would like to celebrate that special occasion maybe a video call with 10 people is perfect for you as the caregiver but um, as the loved one with cancer that you're taking care of that might seem a bit overwhelming so you might want to consider maybe limiting that call to two or three people or maybe have your loved one on for five minutes of the call or video call and then um continue on for a longer period once your loved one is off. So it's important to communicate, as Dr. Ketcher said, ask each other how you want to celebrate um, that particular milestone and then be respectful of each other's decisions. And so some ways that um, I have celebrated and some of my patients have shared with me over the past year of celebrating either by a video call or a phone call, Um, they've pulled out photo albums. Either they've had, um, you know, the physical photo albums that they've pulled out or family members have created digital ones that they have been able to share um, milestones over the years. I've even pulled out artwork that my children um, did when they were in elementary school I have two college age, um, two of my three are college age and so they were having a a, a down day and so I pulled out some of their early elementary school artwork um, to help inspire them uh, to get through a difficult day. So have fun looking at those photo albums. Share family stories. Every family has funny stories that they um, tell and retell over the years. This is a great time, especially during a high-stress situation like cancer treatment, um, to share those funny stories. Um, You know, even now with the onset of more of us participating in telehealth medicine, some of those stories have been quite comical too. So have those stories to reconnect with others in your family, um, to remember loved ones who may have passed away, and to create new family memories. Video calls are another great way to get everybody together. Um, One of the things that um, uh, a patient of mine told me that they do is they participate in what they call the top three. And so I said, the top three, well, what is that? Is that a game? And they said, no, 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 it's really great. You um, call in each member of your family or whoever's on that video call or phone call, and they tell you the top three of whatever topic it is. So it might be their top three TV shows that that they um, are watching, their top three vacation spots, Um, maybe it's their top three favorite songs, Um, It was a great way for all generations to play this particular game, and um, they have been talking about how much they've learned about each other just by doing this simple activity. I've had um, other uh, patients tell me that they played games uh, via these video calls, um, not only with an online game, but if both members um, of, or, uh, of the group on there have the same game, they've played Battleship, they've played Pictionary, Charades, all sorts of games through video calls. So it, um, it, these calls can take all sorts of fun, um, fun ways to distract us from a stressful time. And I think, too, with COVID-19, we've had a new resurgence of getting physical mail um, or snail mail. Um, It has died off and been replaced with a lot of emails. But um, remember that you can just jot a postcard to a loved one or send them a physical birthday card um, and gives all of us a reason to look forward to um, the, um, the post office delivery. And so next, I'm going to talk about managing family friends and traditions in the context of of Covid nineteen, including um, physical distancing and wearing masks. So you as the the caregiver has now now has a new job not only as caregiver, but you're now the gatekeeper of anyone coming into your home or, Um, managing social distancing, physical distancing when your loved one needs to go to medical appointments or is um, uh, going on an errand. And so the first thing that I want to stress is something that um, both of my colleagues have stressed is communication. Um, It's not only the key to managing those medical appointments, but also to managing family and friends who might want to visit you and your loved one but they're not often um, sure what's happening during your day. They may not realize what the pressure of a typical day looks like to you, um, and they may not know the COVID restrictions um, for someone receiving cancer treatment or in your local area. So help them understand by telling them when they can visit and what precautions they need to take in order to visit with you. If you're unsure about the timing of family visits, or uh, what precautions need to be taken before entering your house, you can always ask your medical team, but I have some general guidelines. Um, And the first one is, you're gonna screen anybody who might be sick. So if anybody has a fever, chills, diarrhea, um, any COVID-19 symptoms, you wanna ask them not to come um, visit until they are fully recovered. And COVID-19 symptoms can mimic seasonal allergies, Sometimes sinus infections or the flu, and so if someone has any of any symptoms, um, ask them just to visit another time because it's not worth it, uh, worth the risk to pass COVID nineteen onto any of your loved ones. Um, if, when possible, prioritize outdoor activities over indoor activities. Um, and you want to make sure, as your gatekeeper, that anybody coming into your house has either washed their hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds or have used a hand sanitizer with at least 70% alcohol content. Um, I keep hand sanitizer by my front door um, for the unexpected neighbor who might pop over. Um, and... you. Keep a closer eye on smaller children um, and teenagers. Um, Teenagers won't need help to wash their hands like small children will, but they may need an extra reminder or two. Um, And if you're going to someone's house, I always pack kind of an emergency bag um, with my own hand sanitizer and a couple extra masks in case um, my friend or my loved one um, has run out and someone unexpectedly pops over and doesn't have their mask. It's also a good thing at your own house to have a couple masks by um, your front door um, next to that hand sanitizer so that people just popping over unexpectedly, um, you can um, get their hands sanitized and have them put on a mask. Again, you want to be mindful of maintaining that physical distance um, of at least six feet or more from people that don't live in your um, household. And if you're visiting a family in another city, State or country, ask what the local COVID-19 restrictions are. Um, as we know, it, they are in flux constantly. You may have to quarantine in your hotel before visiting someone or you may need to get a COVID test. So, the key there is um, communication with who you're going to visit um, and to plan ahead. And next, I'm going to move on to long-distance caregiving. So despite the many challenges with COVID-19, it has had a couple advantages. And the first one is that our long distance caregivers are better able to participate in caring for their loved ones. Um, Long distance caregivers are anyone, anywhere, who are not living with the person receiving care. And in the past, it's been a little bit harder for them to join medical appointments and um, provide that care at a distance. But as of last year, when everybody had to um, almost almost everyone had to become a long distance caregiver, we have done a much better job um, around the world in this role. So long distance caregivers um, can take on different roles and provide relief for the local caregiver, um, including scheduling medical appointments or tracking those appointments, managing medical or managing prescription refills. Um, They can assist with um, finances. They can also be the information coordinator. Um, And by that I mean they can be the expert on things such as the insurance, um, managing the bills associated with um, the insurance. Long distance caregivers are great at providing emotional support um, and they can also provide respite care if they're able to travel to the area. They can coordinate meal delivery, grocery shopping, yard work, and they can also coordinate family meetings to pull everybody together um, when important decisions need to be made or when updates need to be made. Um, Speaking of communication, they can also keep family and friends updated and informed. I use this example. When um, I was faced with a serious health crisis. I found it extremely helpful to have a spokesperson to communicate updates to friends and family members. For me, my spokesperson was my dear friend and um, she wasn't my caregiver. My husband was overwhelmed and was happy to turn the communication piece over to my dear friend Georgie. And um, this simple task made such a huge difference um, for our family. So think about what tasks a long distance caregiver could do for you and have that list ready for when they ask what they can do. So you can give them a selection of maybe three choices and they can pick um, one or all of those selections to focus on. And now long distance caregivers are able to sometimes join medical appointments via telemedicine. They can help prepare questions ahead of the appointment, they can take notes during the appointment, and they can help that treatment plan stay on schedule. So if you're a long-distance caregiver and you're interested in joining an appointment, please confirm with um, the caregiver, the patient, and the medical team um, that this is okay, and they can um, give you the link so that you can join that medical appointment. Again, you need permission from um, both the patient and the medical team um, to participate in that call. And I'm gonna wrap up with some self-care tips for managing stress. So taking care of your um, mental and emotional health is just as important as taking care of your physical health. Just like you would take your medication every day, I want you to take care of your mental and emotional health every day. And part of this is to build up our resilience or our ability to withstand, recover, and sometimes grow when faced with adversity. So think of resiliency strategies that you have learned and used in the past year since COVID started. I bet you have a list, and I would love to hear some of yours during the question and answer session. And so a couple of mine are um, getting up and going for a walk. Now, you don't have to get up and walk for 20 miles, just getting up and walking for 10 minutes can help relieve some anxiety um, that's been building up for the day. Play your favorite song. Dance to your favorite song. Call a friend. Call a friend and maybe go for a walk with them around the block or around your neighborhood. You could journal, paint, play a musical instrument. Um, Do you have a pet? Do you have a dog or a cat or some other animal that um, you could just Um, give some pets to give some love to to help reduce anxiety you can try deep breathing meditation or praying you can think of a word or a phrase um, or an image to help redirect any negative thoughts that start creeping into your mind you can think of that image and that can help you redirect those thoughts into a neutral or a positive thought tap into techniques um, that have worked for you in the past. One that has worked for me, I, I will wholeheartedly admit that when I'm waiting in a long line at the grocery store, I, I don't have a lot of patience. Um, and especially when I'm wearing a mask now in the grocery store, I have less patience. And so as a way to kind of redirect my own negative thoughts, I've started humming. So you if you're in the grocery store in um, Maryland, you may hear me humming Frosty the Snowman, or um, any song that kind of pops into my mind um, that, has, that makes uh, me bring a smile to my face um, that helps take my mind off the, the grocery line and elevates my mood immediately. And there are counseling services available, and I would strongly encourage you to look into this resource. Cancer Care has many innovative, supportive programs and services that support both our caregivers and our loved ones um, with cancer during this difficult time that Dr. Messner will talk more about. And one resource um, that I've been recommending to my patients recently is from the Lymphoma and Leukemia Society. It's a free workbook called the Caregiver Workbook, and it's filled with just pages of tips on caregiver communication, caring for yourself as the caregiver, it has um, Uh, worksheets for meal planning, medication logs, health insurance tracking forms, and so much more. You can go to that website um, and download that workbook for free. And so in conclusion, I want to remind all of our caregivers and people living with cancer that they are not alone. There are networks like Cancer Care that offer support and resources for you. Reach out access these networks to get the support that you need. Thank you very much for your time today, and I'll turn the presentation back over to Dr. Messner. Thank you.
1: Yes, thank you. Um, and um, I want to thank Ms. Flynn for your excellent and really extraordinary presentation. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And before we move on to the Q&A, I just want to say a few words about the services that you can access from Cancer Care. So Cancer Care is a national organization And we provide a host of services from um, and they're provided by our oncology social workers and they're all free. So um, many people call our hope line at 1-800-813-HOPE or 1-800-813-4673 and speak with one of our oncology social workers for support and to ask questions. We also offer um, practical financial and call payment assistance. And that's been incredibly helpful to people, particularly during this time. We also do have special funds for people um, struggling with COVID issues as well. We also offer online support groups. We offer workshops as you're participating in today, about 75 of them per year. And we also um, offer uh, publications. So a host of different services that you can access for free from Contacting Cancer Care. And and some of you can either call our HopeLine or you can visit our website at www.cancercure.org. And now we're going to move on and I'm going to ask um, uh, uh, Michelle to bring all of our speakers on board for our questions. And we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Michelle?
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question hasn't answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question.
1: And we have a question for one of our online participants. Um, So this is a question for uh, Dr. Haberman. I would like to learn more about MCL so I can support my mother. What are some reliable sites should I speak to your healthcare team if you could address this? I bit.
2: think uh, speaking to your healthcare team, especially if it's a, a physician specifically involved in career in lymphoma, um, I do have a recommendation, and it is a, a potential bias, but I was just was the chair of the Scientific Advisory Board of the Lymphoma Research Foundation and both they and the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society have remarkable websites. I can tell you that what's out on the uh, Lymphoma Research Foundation website has been heavily vetted. Um, I've vetted a lot of the information uh, over the last uh, six to eight years, uh, being in the capacities I was in. So I think that's that's where I would recommend starting, and then that organization also has a, a book on lymphoma. And it's written uh for patients and family members. It's not written for physicians and uh patients and family members that I provided the, the book for when I'm seeing them have really appreciated it and then it's really helped. It's made the, the questions and the understanding of these diseases much easier to talk about when I meet with them. Excellent. Thank you. Um
1: and um And um, so this is a, a question, um, another question from one of our online participants. Um, so this is um, a question for um, Ms. Flynn. As a caregiver, will I be able to communicate with my father's healthcare care team? What a great question.
4: And um, yes. And I would ask um, your father how he currently communicates with his healthcare care team. Um, there are patient portals, um, which we, we were just emerging before the uh, COVID-19 outbreak. And now I think, at least at my institution, we use them a lot more um, for routine questions, um, if people want to contact their nurse, if they want to find out more about their disease or condition or lab results. So I would start with, um, does he have a patient portal? Um, and next, um, he could submit that question if maybe you wanted to join um, his next healthcare care appointment uh, via telemedicine, um, if that would be available. Um, so those are are two places that I would um, start with. And I hope that answered your question.
2: Um, Carolyn, could I just Yes. Uh, add, oh, yes, and,
1: please.
2: Uh, as a physician, I just went through this yesterday. If you would like to ask me, a, if I was seeing your father, and you would like to ask me a direct question, and you weren't sitting in front of me with your father, then your father would need to do, in the United States, need to do a HIP, sign a HIPAA release. Uh, um, otherwise, we are, are put ourselves at risk. I realize these are extra steps, but these were put in place by different uh, healthcare uh, initiatives uh, at the federal level.
1: That's an excellent point, excellent point, and um, um, so that you want to be sure that um, for, for all of you on the calls, as uh, caregivers that you are, um, that uh, person who has MCL has identified you as someone who can reach out to their physician, and sometimes people also ask their a person that they're concerned about for their permission to do that in addition, even if they have permission, just so they know that communication is happening. Very important. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Haberman. And a question also for Dr. Haberman. Um, uh My father, who has MCL, is now fully vaccinated. Will he be able to visit my children who aren't vaccinated?
2: It's an extremely complicated question. <laughs> the The long and short answer of of it is we we don't know all the answers to your question um, i We don't know how the vaccine is performing with the new variants that are emerging, and this changes by the day and the week and it would also depend upon um how recent the chemotherapy was and what kind of chemotherapy. If a patient's treated with the anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies, such as rituximab, then there's impaired um, antibody production for, like, up to nine months, at least. Then, also, if there was, let's say, a drug called uh, bendamustine was utilized in the treatment, then the T-cell response is also impaired. And so... at this point in time, my recommendation is to be to take the conservative side of this approach. I know how difficult this is to deal with, with not being able to see my own mother and some other things in the same in the same vein, but just that we have the vaccine and have been vaccinated, we don't know how protective it is number one, and then if we're exposed to individuals who have not been vaccinated we we don't know how safe that really is in in, in in on this particular day in twenty twenty one. And it's goes to the principle too that just just being vaccinated does not imply that we can go back to live the way we were living prior to the pandemic. Excellent.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Um and um <clears throat> So for Ms. Flynn, I feel so busy. How can I make time for myself as a caregiver?
4: Oh, another great question. Um, and so it, it is difficult to find even those, um, you know, 15 minutes, half an hour during the day. And so I wonder if maybe you could um, ask a friend um, or trusted family member to come over and um, kind of watch your loved one that has mantle cell cancer to give you um, a bit of a break. Um, sometimes um, our, our loved ones take a nap and we're able to um, kind of slip out and maybe take a walk or, or do an activity that provides fulfillment for us. Um, I've had to get up um, when I've been a caregiver a little bit early um, to kind of make that happen. And so we have to kind of get creative there, um, trying to make time. But even if you can devote 10 minutes a day, and um, I I hope that you have 10 minutes somewhere in your day that you can um, devote to um, a relaxing activity, it does make a difference. And I also just,
3: one strategy I know we've used with caregivers um, in one of the research studies we have is that we um, have a problem-solving activity. So the problem would be, you know, exactly what you just said. I need to figure out some time for myself. So figure out what that activity is that you want to do. Maybe it's sitting down and reading a book. Maybe it's going outside for a walk. Whatever it is, write it down, and then... Take some time to write down what all the possible solutions could be. No matter how ridiculous they are, write all of those down. And then you can kind of go through those and see, okay, well that one's not going to happen for this reason. That one, yeah, maybe it could work, maybe it couldn't. Um, but you'll you'll eventually hopefully kind of progressively work through that problem um, and be able to identify ways that you can, you know, tackle
1: tackle that problem. And I know that's been really helpful with the caregivers that we've worked with. And from the schedule, there's a question about the protective buffer. Would you want to say a little bit about that? It's such a wonderful concept.
3: Yeah, so protective buffering is um, a concept we use in communication studies. Where you, you've done We've all done this, right? We, we hold something back. We hold back telling someone else something um, because we don't want to hurt their feelings. We don't want to make them feel sad. We don't want to, um, you know, a lot of times in caregiving, we don't want to maybe think about mortality. We don't want to think about end of life. Um, but really what comes down with this is that you're holding, by you holding back, that is affecting you at some level, right? That is going to affect you emotionally. It's going to then affect you physically because we know that emotion and physical health are very um, intimately tied. Um, and more often than not, patients also are doing the same thing. Your loved one is also holding things back. So I know it can be really, really tough to kind of get over that hurdle of, um, you know, maybe broaching a subject that you're nervous to talk about. But it it really is so, so important that, you know, maybe sit with that for a little bit. Recognize that it's something that you're nervous to talk about. Um, Do some reflection and say, okay, why am I nervous to talk about this? But more often than not, if you kind of um, come at it with a safe space with the person that you love, it will be received um, well and it's probably something that the other person also wants to talk about as well. So if I could, again, this is something I see so, so, so often in the caregivers I work with, that they just don't have these conversations and it's eating them up inside. Um, And then I talk to the patient and they have the same issue, right? So I would just really suggest, you know, work through it um, and and address those issues because they are obviously very important.
1: Excellent, thank you. And this will be our last question and it's a question um for Dr. Haberman. Um when should I call the doctor team if something is concerning?
2: Well, if something's concerning, just that word alone, you should contact someone because I I can tell you for after 35 years of doing this that that someone to filter that through someone else. This could be more significant than you think. I'm on the hospital service this week. Seen three patients that it was basically kind of in disbelief they didn't contact someone much or, much sooner, and it would have made a big difference. And I mean that, they, these are th- three out of 18 that I saw today, and so it, it's very important to communicate. that We're around. This is what we do for a living. It's it's different than what we did 18 months ago, but I think the way to get at us is 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 become even a little easier with either portals, as, as mentioned, and as, uh, or, or through nurse support. I have a, We have a far better nursing support structure within our group than we've had before. So don't be afraid to call people. And I just want to also add, I've not participated in such a, a panel as I did today, but Dr. Ketcher and Ms. Flynn really did an extraordinary job. I, I took a lot of notes. I hope everybody else did, too.
1: Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Haberman. This was an extraordinary call, and um, and um, Dr. Ketrensen and, and, and you as well were wonderful, um, and I think um, I think everyone was taking a lot of notes during this call, and um, I also want to remind everyone that although this call happened in real time, it will be available probably tomorrow um, as, a, um, as a podcast that you can listen to again, and you can listen to it as often as you want. It should be up for at least a year, if not longer. So just you all know that. Um, so thank you. Um, I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. Um, I also recognize that there are many more people in queue that have questions. So I do want to address um, all of you um, in, who are who on this call today. I want to thank you for your wonderful questions. And I, I think, and wonderful speakers, of course, the whole, the whole um, uh, experience today was just phenomenal. Um, for those of you who asked a question, and for those of you who may have a question they didn't get to ask but heard information and learned information, we ask you to go back to your treating healthcare team. With e- those of you even who asked the question, we want you to ask the healthcare team that question as well. And for those of you who are, um, did not get to ask your question, of course, ask your healthcare team. Um, they are the very best people to ask. We never want to sidestep your healthcare team. Um, we never want to um, not have you ask a question of your health team. That's really important. Um, I also want you to know that there are organizations out there to help you, um, Cancer Care being one of them. We've also mentioned the Lymphoma Research Foundation. And at the end of today's program, you will be receiving um, a survey Monkey evaluation of the program. And it is an evaluation. We always appreciate your filling that out. But in addition to that, you'll be getting various resources that were mentioned during the program today. Um, that we think will be helpful to you to have. So it will also give you some extension of the program today with additional information. And for those of you who wish to access the service of cancer care, please go ahead and contact us. Um, and I, I want to thank you all for your participation today. And I do want to um, say something about the feeling of being alone. I know that many of you have a feeling of being alone. It's a normal feeling to have, but I think it may be a bit more heightened with covid and so I want you to know that you're now part of a community of support, and many organizations exist out there to support you. The specific ones on lymphoma are the Lymphoma Research Foundation and the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. The more general organizations include Cancer Care and the American Cancer Society. Some organizations are available during business hours, and some, like the American Cancer Society, have a 24 hour 365 265-day-a-year call center. So that's something to just tuck away. That's good to you to have. And you'll be getting that information as well. So although it's normal to feel alone, we want you to know that you're really a phone call or a mouse click away from support. And also, of course, your healthcare team. Always find out their availability evenings and weekends because that always seems to be the time that people have the most extraordinary questions that they have. I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.